It's impossible not to like TLC. Uh, it's great to be back from vacation. Uh, really excited about Vacation Bible School tomorrow, VBS, and that spaceship. I'm so excited. What's, what's in it? Um, I'm excited for our baptism service next Sunday. Uh, if you've never been baptized as an adult, uh, we want you to just encourage to, to consider that. Uh, it's our proclamation that we're Christ for life, that the old life is gone and the new life we now live in Jesus. It's the public proclamation or confession of something that's already taken place inside of our own hearts, and we want to encourage you to consider that. Uh, next week is also the finale of our Jonah sermon series. Uh, there's four chapters in Jonah. The series is four weeks long. Uh, we've done one and two. Brad took us through chapter two last week in the belly of the fish. And this morning we dive in chapter three. Next week's the finale, chapter four. If you don't follow us on social media, we are kind of putting, um, you know, like uh, things that, that were on the cutting room of, of the, uh, the sermon, notes, uh, ideas, thoughts, di- diving deeper into the chapter, things that we didn't get a chance to cover on Sunday mornings. We kind of been putting online and it's been just some great feedback from most of you. And uh, we'll be doing that again for chapter three this week. If you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah chapter 3. It's in the middle of the book, middle of the Bible. Now, there are striking similarities between chapter 1 of Jonah and chapter 3 of Jonah. And because I was able to teach chapter 1, take a break, and then teach chapter 3, I'm able to see these two connections uh, strikingly. Just look at the opening verses of both chapters. Look at Jonah 1.1 1, 1 says this, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Jonah 3.1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. The introduction of the characters happens with the exact same words as the first commissioning, except for one change. Rather than introducing Jonah, son of Amittai, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, if we were God, and we, were, we called the prophet to do something, and he did the opposite, right? We called him to go west, and he goes east instead. And then we use a giant storm and a bunch of pagan sailors to speak to them. He rebels even further, ends up at the bottom of the sea. We rescue him, and it's only in the midst of that where he turns and repents at all. If we were God, who could blame us if we said, all right, Jonah, go home now. I'm glad that you turned from your disobedience, but obviously you're not fit for the task, so... Would this be a reasonable response of God? Yes, of course. But this is not God's way. Because at the beginning of chapter 3, we find these words. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time. Oh, the greatness of the unmerited grace of God. See, we are moved to think of God as this God of second chances. But if we're honest, we know he's not a God of second chances. We know he is a God of the 999th chance. He doesn't give up on Jonah, and he gives him a second chance, and he doesn't give up on me, he doesn't give up on you. He gives us the second chance we probably don't deserve. Notice that also in these opening verses that the message Jonah is to proclaim to the Ninevites is different than it says in chapter 1. Look at verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh. This is chapter 1. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Okay, this is a a wrathful, judgmental God here, right? The wickedness has risen up before me. Go preach against it. Okay, throw down on those Ninevites. Now look at chapter 3. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Proclaim to it the message I give you. Interesting. Gone is the phrase preach against it. And instead, it says proclaim. Another translation says speak. Gone is that anger that you see. And now it's not, it's not the wickedness has come before me. It's go give them the message that I will give to you. Uh, the anger of God toward Nineveh is no longer expressed in the divine speech. Now, it's, he still might be angry, but God's words have a different feel. And we wonder, what will God actually tell Jonah to speak? We're not actually told. We do know what Jonah said, but we don't know if that's what God told him to say or not. There are so many parallels, but parallels between chapters 1 and 3, but this, this is going to be the last one we look at. Look at verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. That's chapter 1. Chapter 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. And one call... 
Jonah runs away. But two chapters later, he obeys. This is life, isn't it? A kind of one step forward, two steps back. Three steps forward, one step back. We're all in this journey of running away and then turning back and obeying and then running away and turning back. I pray that we more consistently become Jonah 3s rather than Jonah 1s. That we respond in obedience. Now, obedience, it kind of has a negative connotation to it, right? But once again, obedience is where the life is. Uh, we're kids in a parking lot trying to let go of our father's hands so that we can jump off the curb. But actually, next to mom and dad, holding their hands is where the life is. This is a picture of an Arabian horse. These Arabian horses are spectacular beasts. Uh, and they go through rigorous training in the Middle East. The trainers require absolute obedience from the horses, and they test them to see if they're completely trained. And the final test is almost beyond the endurance of any living being at all. The trainers force the horse to... That sounded that sound like Mr. Ed's theme song. Uh, they force the horse, of course... Uh, to go without water for days. And then they release him, and the horse starts booking to go to water. And just before they reach fresh water, he, the trainer blows the whistle. And if a, if a horse is fully trained, they will then turn around and trot back to the owner. Every part of their being is longing for that water, but when that whistle blows, they turn around and trot back to the owner, panting, craving what is behind them, but being obedient to their master. And then he releases them to go drink the water. Now, you guys might think that's, that's pretty harsh, but if you are in a trackless Arabian desert and your lifeline is this noble steed, you better have him well-trained because your life depends on it. Obedience isn't a bad word. It's trusting that God knows better than we do. Now, let's finish the chapter. I'm going to do quite a bit of reading here. We're just going to read the rest of the chapter together because I think it's, it's better to be seen as a whole. So uh, follow along. Verse 3 says this, Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. So he's a third of the way in, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. So Jonah goes a third way into the city. The, the author makes it clear that the whole city takes three days to get through, and it makes it clear that Jonah goes one day in. So he's a third way in. He says this five-word message in Hebrew. Doesn't make it very far. But then his message goes viral. He only gets a third way into the city, but the message just takes off. Verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Jonah didn't make it to the palace. He didn't make it to the headquarters of Assyria or to the, the main part of the capital, all the political beings in uh, buildings in Nineveh. No, he only made it a third way into the city, but yet the message went viral as it could in 8th century B.C., and it reaches the king. You put on sackcloth, which is like burlap. It's just this, it's a symbol of mourning. It's a symbol of woe is me. It's, 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 a, it's a posture of humility. Here's the king of the most brutal empire of the world putting on sackcloth, taking off his robes and his crown, and humbling himself before God. Verse 7. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. The animals fasted, right? Remember this from chapter 1? Even the cows repented from one to the utter. Uh, verse 8. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. 
Frank E. Gabeline says this, If the miracle of the fish is great, that of this chapter is greater. For here is the record of nothing less than the greatest mass conversion in history. Jonah, with his five-word sermon, makes Billy Graham like chump change. This is an unbelievable revival that takes place in Nineveh. Now, to kind of put this a little bit in perspective, Assyria is the most, one of the most cruelest and most violent empires of the ancient world. After capturing enemies, Assyrians would typically cut off their legs uh, and one arm, leaving the other hand so that they could mock them by shaking their hands. They forced friends and family members to parade with decapitated heads of their loved ones on elevated poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on the city walls. They burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destruction of their cities uh, had to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. Now, King Sennacherib of Assyria recorded lots of his victorious campaigns um, and actually decorated the palace halls with paintings and sculptures of their various military victories and actually discovered in the southwest palace of Nineveh uh, within the last 50 years um, was some amazing paintings that are now put in the British Museum. This is called the, the, the Battle of Lachish. Uh, and Lachish is actually, this story is mentioned in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 18 uh, of the king of Assyria conquering this Hebrew city. And he displays it on his own palace walls as he walks to his own bedroom he sees this painting, skinning Hebrews, Assyrians skinning Hebrews. This is what the Assyrians do to Israelites. This is what the Ninevites do to Israel. This is them being impaled on stakes in the same wall. So as we read this story, we kind of pick on Jonah, right? Thinking, well, you're so focused on God blessing the people of God, but not those people. But when you try and see the Ninevites from the Israelite perspective, it changes things. So when God pronounces judgment on them, he's not being mean. God is not being a jerk by confronting this evil and injustice. It's supposed to arise in all the Israelites. No, go get them, God. This is not mean of God. It's right. And remember, Jonah 1, God tells Jonah to throw down, right? Preach against it. But in chapter 3, God says, speak to them the message I will give you. Well, what message did God give Jonah? We don't know. All we have is the message that Jonah gave. Whether or not it was from God or not, we're not told. In Jonah's sermon, it's five words in Hebrew. Okay, a five-word sermon. Something I am incapable of giving. And here it is in Hebrew. It's, it's od arba'im yom weninua ne paketh. It's my $20,000 seminary education. <laughs> and it means, yet 40 days, Nineveh overthrown. Transforms the city. Greatest revival, history of mankind. Five words. Yet 40 days, Nineveh overthrown. This is one of the most, this five-word sermon is one of the most intriguing aspects of the entire book of Jonah, and maybe even the whole Minor Prophets. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of their need to repent, and there's no mention of who or any of that. Like, it's going to get overthrown? By who? By what army? By what God? What are you talking about? Though there is no more mention of the whale from chapter 2, in chapter 3, there's something fishy going on. There's something fishy about this. The entire city responds to his really bad preaching. This could be just another juxtaposition, right? Like these terrible Assyrians, these horrible, terrible, violent people are eager to repent with just a five-word sermon where God had to get Jonah to repent, had to send him to hell and high water, literally, for him to turn around. So it's, it's another play on uh, the characters aren't acting how they're supposed to act. Nobody acts the way they're supposed to in Jonah. But there's something else going on here beneath the surface, something fishy. 
It could be that Jonah is engaging in prophetic sabotage. Prophetic sabotage. He's physically going, he's obeying, yes, he's physically going to Nineveh. But verbally, he's giving as little information as possible to ensure that they won't be willing to repent. Is this in line with Jonah's character that we've seen thus far? Absolutely. Jonah's minimal effort achieves maximum results. Oh, I'll go, God. Oh, I'll God. I'll go. I'll go. I'm going to go a third of the way into the city. I'm not going all three days. And I'm going to say, yet 40 days, Nineveh overturned. Did my job. Whole city's repenting. Cows are mourning. Chickens are fasting. And Jonah's like, what? They're ready. Look at verse 5. It says this, the Ninevites believe God. What? That's weird. They believed God? You'd think it would say the Ninevites believed Jonah. It doesn't. It says they believe God. See, their hearts are so in tune to what's going on that God is actually filling in all the gaps to Jonah's bad preaching. God's already at work. They believe Yahweh, not Jonah. The gaps are filled in. They believe and they act on it. They repent. Repent is one of those words, too, like obedience. It carries, it's a very spiritual word. You don't hear repent over, like, coffee at Starbucks or tea. You know, we need to repent. It's, you hear it from street preachers with a big old sign, right? Repent, for the kingdom of God is it near. Repent just means this, to turn around. It means to rethink everything. It says that these Ninevites repented. They, it says they believed God. Well, how do we know they believe God? Well, because they express that belief in actions. Fasting, sackcloth, they turn from their evil ways. I heard so much about belief growing up in the church. Everything was about belief. I have to believe the right things. I have to believe this, and I have to believe that. And, I, and if you don't believe the way that you're supposed to believe, God's going to be really, really upset, and you could be off on a horrible trajectory. Belief, 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 belief. And I always thought belief was intellectual assent. I have to have, I have, to have those beliefs right in my head if I'm going to be in right standing with God, if I'm going to be in right standing with the Word. Belief, belief. I think that's an adventure in missing the point. Because what can happen is this, and you, we've all seen this. Okay, we said, I believe this chair will hold me if I stand on it. I believe it. I believe it in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. If I stand on this chair, it will hold me in Jesus' name. And I just go and live my life. That's not belief. To, to, to say that I believe the chair will hold me is not actually believing if I, to, 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 to truly believe means that I stand on it. I put my life on it. Now I believe the chair will hold me. So we can say I believe in Jesus all we want. But until we stand on Jesus, until we build our life upon him, until we go, Jesus, you're holding me up. It's not about me. It's about you. That's believing. I, I think that believing... It, it would be better to stop saying believe and say believe. I know people are going to think you're saying it wrong. But believing for Jesus is a much more biblical response than believing Jesus. Believing. I believe in Jesus. Because belief is a holistic life response, and we can see that in the Ninevites. They actually turn from their ways. Uh, verse 8 says this, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Uh, this word repent, it, it's, the, it's the Hebrew word shuv, S-H-U-V, shuv. And it just, it, it's, it's an interesting word. It's an, it, it's, it's an image of walking. You're walking and then a judgment is rendered that you're going the wrong way. 
So there's a, two paths. You take one path, you're going that way. Then a judgment is rendered. And it says, that's the wrong way. So then you shuv. You repent, and you begin to go the right way. And the, the prophets picked up this word and used it as a powerful metaphor for how we relate to God. We're all on this journey. We go down certain roads in life, and the prophet's job is to say, dude, that's the wrong way. You need to shuv. You need to repent. He's calling people to shuv, to turn around, to go a different direction. That's repentance. When it comes to our own lives, this will be on the screens, it is much easier to repent of sins that we have committed than to repent of those we intend to commit. See, we've got these certain sins we go, I'm probably going to commit that. And God wants us to turn now from that. It's, it's like, you know, it's easier to say I'm sorry than to ask for permission. Well, God's saying no, so let's turn from that now. Repentance isn't taking back something you did. It's making it right and living right. Believe it. Believe it. Not long ago, the church got a phone call from an Oklahoma area code. And I don't know if many of you guys know this. My cell phone number is the church number on the website. So you want to call Prodigal Church? It's my cell. Um, so I look, and it's Oklahoma area code. And I, I pick it up, and it was a pastor asking for help for one of his members. It says that, that we got one, we've got a member who's traveling through Fresno, and they're stuck, and they just need some money. Uh, and uh, I think they need like $40, something like that. Uh, here's their number, and I said, hey, listen, you know, we're a new church in town, like, we have very limited resources, but you should call this church, and I gave them a number of another church that has a lot more money than we do, and, uh, and then he said, okay, thanks, a lot. bless you, bye, hung up. Uh, later that week, uh, our church gets an email from a Christian organization here in town that, that kind of connects all, uh, all the churches, and the email said that there's a scammer going to different churches and asking for money. He says he's a pastor from out of town, et cetera, et cetera. And I go, oh, oh dude, he called us. And then I pointed him to another church. <laughs> My bad. Uh, two months go by, and the church gets another call. Oklahoma Erica. And I go, I'm intrigued. I say, hello, prodigal church. How can I help you? And uh, the guy gives me the same spiel. And I'm like, dude, he's trying to get me. And so I let him finish his whole story. And then I say, hey, bro, man, we'd like to help, but dude, this feels a bit scammy. And in fact, we got an email a couple months ago about this exact kind of thing happening. Click. Hangs up on me. And I go, okay, man. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I'm sitting at Teaser's Tea House in River Park. We get a call on my church cell phone from an Oklahoma area code. And uh, I'm like, no way. So I pick it up and I go, prodigal church? How can I direct your call? <laughs> Same spiel. Asking for $40. One, he's a pastor, one of his parishioners. And I say, you know, we're a mobile church. And I'm officing in River Park today. But if, if he can get here, we're going to help him. And he goes, great, great. Here's his number. I'll have him text you when he's close. And I said, perfect. Two hours go by, I get a text, he says, I'm here. I look through the window, I see him. And he's got a dirty, torn-up shirt. It's 110 outside. He's sweating crazy, he rode his bike there. So I walk out, I shake his hand, and I go, hey man, can I buy you lunch? And he says, yeah. I go, what do you feel like? And he's like, a burger. Me too. So we go to Five Guys, right by the theater. We sit down, we order. We both got mellow yellow. They have mellow yellow and a fountain drink there. And he's like, this is awesome. I go, I know. So we get mellow yellow. We get our burgers. We kind of start talking. And then I get a text from my wife. And she's like, where are you? And I'm like, that's weird. And then I look out the window, and Sarah's got both kids. They were going to surprise me. And so like, I'm like, oh, uh, could you just hold on real fast, bro? I'm going to go. My, my family's out there. And so like, and I'm torn. Like, I'm like, I don't really... 
I don't know this guy. And so I go out there and I, I kind of tell Sarah, she's like, who is that? And I go, it's a long story. Can I call you in 20 minutes? And, uh, and so then I go back in and we sit down and I go, hey man, I'm just going to show you all my cards. I know this is a scam. And he goes, no, 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 it's, it's, not, it's not a scam. And I said, yes, it is. You called me two weeks ago. And he lowers his head and I say, bro, no judgment. I go, look at me, look at me. And he raises his face and he looks at me. And I say, do you see any judgment in my eyes? And he goes, no. And I go, there is none. I go, we're still going to help you. And he goes, what? And I go, it doesn't change. I know it's a scam. We're still going to help. And I go, because that's who God is. That's what God is like. And he said, and he tells me everything. He goes, whenever I call a church and I tell them the real story, he goes, they don't give me the time of the day. But when I got this pastor thing going on, they actually helped me. And I said, I'm sorry. And then he said, my dad used to be a pastor. And now look at me. I'm ashamed. I'm a fraud. Tells me his whole life story. And I go, okay. I go hey, I got my, my family here real quick, but can I meet you in 20 minutes? 20 minutes, meet me here. And he's like, okay. So then I meet up with Sarah and the kids. And I, I talk to them for a little bit. We play a little bit. And then I pick up my new friend. He puts his new bike in my car. And the first thing he does is he picks up my tiny little Chiefs helmet that I have on my dash. I'm a diehard Chiefs fan. So he picks this up and he goes, what's this? And I go, don't tell me you're a Raider fan. Okay, get out. Get out. <laughs> and he goes, no, no, I'm not a Raider fan. He goes, I'm a Chiefs fan. And I go, come on. Yeah. Lifts up. <laughs> That's what I thought. I thought it was a scam. <laughs> then he lifts up his shirt and he's got a chief's tattoo. Look, here's the proof. He's got a chief's tattoo on his arm. And I'm like, the Lord is in this place. <laughs> so I take him to the grocery store and we bought him a gift card for food there. And we got him a hotel. And we want to be a church that shows the radical love of Jesus. And Alan came to church two weeks ago during our first week of this Jonah sermon series. And he walked from Peach and McKinley to get here. And he pulled me aside and he said, John, what you did for me changed my life. You saw me. You saw me as a person. I've applied for a job. You think I can use you as a reference? And I said, you bet. Now, before, before you think I'm a saint, let me remind you, this was his third call to our church. The first time I sent him to another church, the second time I got hung up on, and even during this time, during lunch, I leave him and make him wait for me while I go spend 20 minutes with my family. I'm no saint. Here's the point. I truly believe that every single day of my life, I am called to something or I am called to someone that is inconvenient for my schedule. It messes with my plan. It messes with my worldview, and God wants to miraculously move. But all too often, I miss the miraculous because I live my life in prophetic sabotage. I don't want to give God everything. I want to give him most. I don't want to be filled to the overflow with the love of God. I just want enough for others to think I'm really spiritual. I don't really want to love my neighbor or love my enemy. I just want to love my family and my friends. All the while, we're sampling the abundant life of Jesus, not actually living it. Are we able to have eyes to see the Ninevites all around us? The places that God has called us to go, the people God has called us to love, and we see them as dearly beloved creations of God, not them. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you rock us with this, God. That we're able to see through the love of scandalous grace. That we're able to see through the lens that you've given us, God. Remove these lenses of prejudice. Remove these lenses of judgmentalism among us. And replace it with divine love. Replace it with grace, with undeserved favor. Replace it with compassion. God, we pray in Jesus' name that you wreck us for you. That we wouldn't be half. That we'd be full. That we wouldn't be bare minimum. We'd be overflowing with your love. Forgive us, 
change us, shape us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? And let's recommit ourselves to this, to walk in this kind of grace. shaping my life.